0: This evening's talk is about the paramis, or the perfections, as this word is sometimes translated, with a a special uh, emphasis on the parami of generosity. So, paramis, the accumulated uh, forces of purity within the heart, within the mind. Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed and hatred and delusion has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each, each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within the heart and mind. One of the roots of the Pali word, parami, conveys a sense of supreme quality. And in Sanskrit, the word paramita means going toward something. So going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed and I'll list them in Pali first and then in English dana, generosity sila, which is virtue or ethical behavior nekama, which is renunciation panya, wisdom virya, energy or effort kanti, patience Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, which is resolve or determination. Metta, loving-kindness, and upekka, equanimity. So we've already uh, explored a number of these through this retreat. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us. The accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience. The accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort or energy, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very forceful, very forceful and result in many forms of happiness, contentment, and a sense of well-being in relationship to the most basic, worldly, sensual pleasures, all the way through to the very highest, most refined happiness of the awakened, the liberated heart, the liberated mind. The development, uh, growth, and maturation of these perfections, these forces of mind and heart, help to counter the forces that cause human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards the, uh, towards developing these qualities in our lives, in our heart and mind, they're not to be undervalued, not to be thought of as not really so important, not the real practice. This aspect or these aspects of training the mind is really an essential, powerful and necessary aspect of moving towards liberation. And as these qualities grow and deepen and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. And very much including the development and blossoming of concentration. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, the heart, of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, the purity of action, our way of being in the world. Conduct in its everyday worldly aspects. And these paramis are generosity, Virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve or determination to practice. And the second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity, the wisdom, the understanding, insight. Both in relationship to everyday worldly life, and the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the very deepest liberating kind. The second aspect of these perfections or paramis includes panya, wisdom, patience, a loving kindness and equanimity. And, of course, all of the paramis are interrelated. And so bring each other to light over and over again. Our practice itself, in its process, is the practice and the process of purification, the purification of the heart and mind. The path of practice that leads one Towards liberation, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight practice, and other specific practices such as the Brahmavihara practices, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, are often called the path of purification. The development of the paramis quite organically, quite naturally occurs within the context of all of these practices. In light of uh, soon moving from an intensive retreat setting into the larger world and considering that in our everyday life here in this intensive retreat setting and in our everyday life outside of the retreat setting, bringing the paramis more into the forefront of one's daily life can be quite helpful and fruitful. It can really be a potent aspect of our practice. And of course the paramis are to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, and one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're something to work towards, to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So no greed, no hatred, no delusion. Which, of course, without a doubt, is a great benefit for everyone oneself very much included. Traditionally the practice, development and gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. So just uh, listing them once more. Dana, generosity. Sila, Virtue or ethical behavior, nekama, renunciation, panya, wisdom, virya, energy, effort, kanti, patience, saka, truthfulness, aditana, resolve or determination, metta, loving kindness, and upekka, equanimity. And this evening, as I mentioned, we'll look uh, deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of heart and mind. So, beginning with a story. Some years ago when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society, There were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't very far from IMS to pay a visit to my friend, the Venerable Maha Gosananda. And some of you may know of him. He's no longer alive, but um, you may know of him. His name translates as Maha, Maha translates as great, and Gosananda sound of bliss. And Maha, as he was fondly called most of the time, was uh, from Cambodia. And he is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside, the villages, and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. And he died some years ago uh, at approximately 94 years old. No one really knew exactly how old he was. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, unpretentious, really so rare. A being with a really, truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a a three-day retreat with him up in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, uh, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was uh, taken into his quarters to say hello. And we really didn't know each other very well, and hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being uh, such an old man, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the um, last time that we had met and I asked him if he remembered me. And his response was, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) 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 And I burst out laughing and I said, wow, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he he said very directly and very sweetly, he responded, it's a good nose. during a three-month retreat that I was teaching at IMS, uh, not too long after this Colorado retreat that I taught with uh, Venerable Maha Gosananda, I, I visited uh, Venerable Gosananda uh, at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was uh, going to see my, my Dhamma grandfather, who in fact used to call me Mum. And at one point um, during that visit, I asked him uh, uh, why he called me Mum, when in fact he was so much older than I was. And he responded saying, We have all been each other's mothers at some point. So you're Mum. So that day, that visit, Mum and Grandfather sat and drank tea and laughed a little bit, talked a little bit. Uh, of history about his life talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's most favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the mind and the heart. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift he offered in just simply being. And I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and then afterwards. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body. My whole being and then and then on outward. An experience that would always continue on for some time beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha were, uh, when I went out to my car, they were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of uh, Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to all of the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. So this evening exploring generosity, this quality really holding a special place and opportunity for all of us in, in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. And particularly now that <clears throat> soon you'll be taking your practice, as I said out of intense or the re- out of intense retreat setting and into the world of your daily life. And of course, one of the most profound um, acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and practices of liberation from suffering. And it's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend. A tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue and renunciation and wisdom, effort and energy and resolve. And this particular telling of this ancient legend is adapted from the tale as it uh, was told by Rafe Martin. It's said that many mahakalpas and world cycles ago before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was about to pay a visit to the small village of Amravati in India and uh, offer an evening of public talks revealing the Dhamma. Well, the villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored. To show their great respect for the Buddha Dapankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through the village and then cover it with a piece of very fine cloth. In the forest, just outside this village of Amaravati, lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later time was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents were wealthy Brahmins, and they had died a few years before, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth. Yet, neither my parents nor my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day, I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world. Why should I remain idle? No, I will leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So he announced his intention uh, to the king and gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life as a hermit. Eating wild fruit and wearing clothes made of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down and within a short time he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's uh, visit to the village Sumedha was roused out of his deep uh, meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the village. it said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday sun? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha, the workman replied, don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare is it beyond all comprehending to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch, (laughs) and offered to help the workman with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy patch of low ground to fill. And he worked with a heart and mind filled with light and joy, repeating over and over, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music, and chanting, and saw flowers being tossed in the air, the Buddha dipankara was approaching. It said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha dipankara and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And he thought, here is one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion, one in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha de Pankara in honor of all that he is. So <coughs> Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground that he hadn't finished filling and lay down on top of it. And loosening and spreading his long, matted hair, he made a passage of himself for the Buddha to Tepang- to walk on. Over the mud. Then he thought, like the Buddha to I want to help all beings. I am determined. Despite all of the difficulties and all of the danger, I'll never turn back. I am resolved to attain what Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot and looking down at Sumedha he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful And in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha. And his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men and children, The Buddha, Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he'll see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions, And near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. And with renewed strength and vigor and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha lying there in the mud... (laughs) <laughs> became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. The next moment the hermit Sumedha put his hands together honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then the Buddha con- the Dipankara continued on his way through the village accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumera arose from his bed of compassionate generosity filled with joy and strength of purpose. It said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering, but in its fullness it's really both offering and receiving. A process which clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer. We give help. We receive. It's really the seamless circle. And just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated and manifested, compassionate generosity. We also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand ways no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago now. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area with a big and very bright smile on his face and thrusts a bunch of golden yellow, bright golden yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China during my 46th birthday And the friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were uh, good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I'd learned that (coughs) in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experiencing some degree of attachment, Mm -hmm. I decided to give my favorite bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though, actually feeling a bit like a one-handed giver Mm -hmm. during my consideration uh, of doing this and then finally deciding to do it. Though, when it actually came time to give her the gift, it was with two hands, with both hands, and with an open heart. And it was at that point truly a joy, though the process of getting there uh, was very much of a practice of generosity for me. A dear friend of mine waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit the three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally, they do. They all come together. But one week before the retreat was to begin, she calls to tell me that she'd given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or actually even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity offered by this young man. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. And there are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothes and the blankets a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And the child is led out of the circle to share the food and the drink with the hungry and the thirsty and the blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. At one point I was feeding my seven-month, oh, this was quite a few years ago, my seven-month-old, she's 16 now, I think, my seven-month-old granddaughter pieces of banana she was sitting in her high chair. And she picks up a piece of banana from the tray of the high chair and stuffs it into my mouth with a great big smile on it. A number of summers ago now, forest fires raged in Los Alamos and Española, here in New Mexico, and hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. That the needs of all those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions came together. And so you both give your the gift of this precious time to yourself and you receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds. So just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning, holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully, down the road. Each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monk's bowls. Imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother or your father or an older sister or older brother and seeing this ritual, this offering, every morning. Taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice taking in the joy of genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving the benefits of generosity are easily learned each day they simply become a natural part of your life And from the Buddha. If beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life and in speaking to his sangha he said Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging ball isn't so easily available in this country, which at least in part is a training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what is offered in support of a way of life. Nor do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light joyous and generous heart. And to the contrary, this retreat, this particular retreat, has been quite special and really quite wonderful in this regard with so many meals offered generously as Donna throughout this retreat. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and accumulate and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas, opinions, views, all that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations. To think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. In <clears throat> a, a poem <clears throat> regarding this, by Naomi Shihab Nye, from her book called *Different Ways to Pray*, and this is uh, from uh, Columbia in 1978. And she calls this poem *Kindness*. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the claw. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere. Like a shadow. Or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our western culture that teaches and deepens us into the living into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation i think that as a culture there's a deep really quite a profound loss in this lack The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may very well be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. And maybe even in this retreat this has happened my seat in the dining room, my walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that has really has any hard and fast owners? Everything. Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving kindness, joy and equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and confusion that's generated through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating, and then fixating on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held onto in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective as the Buddha tells us the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. And there's a little short sutta from the Anguttara Nakaya called Two People. I'm going to read just a portion of it. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anathapindika's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, <laughs> went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, and we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that ally, allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama, instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds. Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. You have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds to allay your fears. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged, said the Buddha. (laughs) Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, uh, three kinds of giving are spoken of. There's what is called beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we're giving. It's still mine. How I first began giving my bracelet to my young Chinese friend. In this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have, and afterward, we might even wonder whether we should have given at all. The second kind of giving can be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. So it's a clear giving. And then there's what's called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have even if none remains for ourselves, And we give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves, in fact, to be only temporary caregivers, or caretakers, caretakers of what's been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. So in this, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. And this is really the true heart of generosity. Eighth century Buddhist monk Shantideva said this, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. (laughs) There's nothing to be held onto in this knowing of the perfectly natural empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. and from South Africa, from Desmond Tutu. Africans believe in something that's difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion, and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together. And as you well know we don't always live with this purity and completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. This is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with yourself. To honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way. And not pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image that you might have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect your limits along the way and to come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity or unconditional kindness and compassion when we might be in fact acting out of maybe fear of loss or maybe fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving this way actually perpetuates fear and perpetuates delusion, strengthening the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which in turn continues, causes the continuing suffering in our and maybe in the other person as well. We might be creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here. Meaning an okayness about being alive in this life. Just simply because here we are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection. A feeling of separateness. An inner lack if we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this needs to be respected. Otherwise giving and sharing may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feelings of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourself away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving or support of others. And when this happens we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted and weaker which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance in relationship to the real needs of others along with a lack of awareness of our own needs. It's important to understand, respect, and honor in ourself and in others, that the wisdom of a true and deep generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship to this on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, To surrender to too many demands. To commit oneself to too many projects. To want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier, Because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level of life, and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness, and our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from from this, are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory and not-self nature of things is a perfectly natural inclination as well. I think that for many of us at least one or all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. (coughs) And looking at the uh, The practice of generosity from another perspective. There's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about. A very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy and miserly. People who sometimes identify themselves as fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive it graciously, if, if it's offered, when it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love, can be difficult for people like this. They might not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they might be physically ill or distressed emotionally. So, the practice. The practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly valuable, maybe a potato or a turnip, and holding it in one hand, and then passing it to the other hand. And back and forth, from hand to hand, this potato or turnip until it gets easy and you don't feel like a fool. (laughs) And then there are the higher practices. If one's motivated and one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity from this perspective, generosity and relinquishment as it's spoken about, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go, relinquishing, offering, everything. All of the accumulations. The outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, I did this practice over a period of time. But instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering, which actually felt quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here without the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. With the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart and with the clear, concentrated mindfulness. Receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, with appreciation, humility, and equanimity. With unconditional acceptance we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task we might be engaged in, to the experience of the breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. And that it's intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. <laughs> In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold we give to help and to free others, and we give to help and free ourselves. This is really the fullness the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and it flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. I'd like to close the talk this evening with another story. About 30 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. And one year I invited him to come and stay in my house, a small, very old, five-room log home out in the Michigan woods. And at that point just one of my sons and I were living there in that house. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came and a very old, well-used, small car pulled up in the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. And he, I don't know if he's still alive, so I don't know if I say he is or was, but anyway. He uh, uh, was, is quite a large man, uh, about six foot three, and very big boned. And he looked even bigger in his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat. <laughs> and then it was like one of those cars in the, in the center ring of the circus that pulls up in, and the doors open and people just keep pouring out. And one is amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. So as my son and I watched, seven people emerged from this tiny little car. Wallace's helpers and (coughs) members of his family. And as it turned out, there were eleven people living in our house during this ten-day period. And the thought went through my mind, how will we all live and sleep? in our tiny house. Well, the space really expanded, seemed to expand. And people were sleeping everywhere. And food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 a.m. And then it was time for a big dinner because no meals were to be taken uh, through the afternoon and evening uh, prior to the sweat lodge ceremonies. During these ten days, I had to let go of many of my preferences (laughs) and habits, needless to say, how I used the various spaces of my house my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences, and lots of other preferences. Wallace and one of the uh, members of his family smoked cigarettes, chain-smoked, continuously, in my no-smoking house. (laughs) And people, as I mentioned, slept all over the house. The day began late in the morning And with the late Sweat Lodge uh, ceremonies, uh, 1 a.m. was dinner time. (laughs) And every afternoon the house was filled with 15 or 20 people coming in to listen uh, to Wallace as he shared teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and There were bowls of food at the door or left on the kitchen counter. And often a a friend and I would be um, cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for uh, our main dish, for our evening meal or early morning meal. The last night, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And as we all sat together in a circle, each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our ten days together. And then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they'd brought with them in gratitude for our sharing our space and time and energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, If one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough, abundance. If one shares one's space, time and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything, simply in the giving, there's abundance he said the next day when everyone left in seeing them off my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car it was kind of like watching a movie playing backwards then the two of us my son and I walked back into the house And we stood there in amazement. The seeming great expanse of our home, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all those days, seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk with a poem from Mary Oliver called Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze-bringers and seed-bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that is better Than these light-filled bodies. All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness and in the pure peace of giving one's gold away. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments.